May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So I have some bad news and some good news. Um, the bad news is that if you want to learn more about what it means to say that the weak eat only vegetables, you'll need to ask me at the cookout where I will be having a hamburger or something. Uh, but the good news is that we're going to start today instead with a fun moral dilemma. Purely hypothetical, I should say in advance. Imagine that it's January and there's been a winter storm and a snow emergency has been declared. And it's the next day, and you need to take your car out to go to a doctor's appointment or the grocery store or to get to work. So you go out early, and you shovel out the snow for an hour to clear your car. You pull out, and because this is Boston, you leave a space saver, as you are allowed to do, a traffic cone or a folding chair or a coffee table. You go off to work or to the store the appointment, and you come back. And when you come back, you find that in your spot, there is another car, someone who has moved your space saver and parked in your nicely shoveled place. You drive around the block and you manage to find another spot somewhere in a parking lot or wherever it may be, and as you walk back, you ponder your revenge. Now, you're a good person. You don't do what one friend of mine suggested and put a brick through their windshield. No, the punishment needs to fit the crime. So you walk back to the space that you had shaved with your shovel in hand, and you spend the next hour shoveling back all that snow <laughs> out of the snowbank, onto the ground, and on top of the car. And as you reach the end of the hour, the owner of the car comes out and says, what are you doing? And you say, well, I thought it would be fair to give you a chance as well to shovel out this spot, which I did first. And they go nuts and start yelling at you. So here, who here thinks that you are in the wrong? Who here thinks that they are in the wrong? Maybe a little bit of both. And who thinks it's a fun story in any case? Now consider some added context. Imagine this. The night before the storm, you had got home late. And it was hard to find a spot. And you managed to squeeze into one. And you thought it was okay. And you came out the next morning before it started to snow. And you saw a note on your windshield. Dear neighbor, just wanted to let you know. I tried to get out to go to work this morning, but you were blocking my driveway. I didn't have time to call a tow truck, but please don't let it happen again. I took the tea. No damage to your car. No cash payment to the towing company somewhere in deepest Somerville. Forgiveness. Does that change what you did two days later? Does it put you more in the wrong? to have been forgiven this parking crime and to be unable to forgive? Maybe. After all, this very 21st century, very Boston story is almost exactly the same as the story Jesus tells in the gospel 2,000 years earlier. Jesus' story is kind of an unsettling one, a story of masters and slaves, violence and punishment. But the mechanics of the story, the plot, is more or less the same. Someone owes a debt, and he can't pay it, and he, he begs for forgiveness and patience. And he's shown mercy beyond what he's even asked for. His payment of the debt is not just delayed, the debt is forgiven. The same man, though, is a creditor himself. 
And when he leaves the place where he's asked for mercy and goes out, he finds someone else who owes him some money, much less, and he demands it back. He immediately, violently tries to take it. And when he's asked for patience, he shows none, throwing the debtor into prison until he pays it off. The aggression and the cruelty he shows and the way he tries to collect this debt are reprehensible. But it's the fact that he's just been forgiven for the very same thing, in fact, for a hundred times the amount, that makes it so much worse. There are several different ways that we can approach this story in the gospel, of course. We shouldn't ignore the horrors of the system of enslavement that forms the backdrop. There's a startling resemblance, actually, to the way that modern slavery often works in human trafficking, where people are offered away into a country like the United States in exchange for a fee, and then trapped and forced to work to pay off that fee with room and board deducted, stuck in a cycle, told they'll be deported if they try to report what's going on. And the magnitude of the debt that this enslaved person owes is astounding. 10,000 talents, a talent being a unit of silver of, you know, this much or so. It's beyond what he could work off in his entire lifetime. A debt of 100 denarii is bad enough. That's like 100 days' wages that he tries to get back from the other guy. But 10,000 talents is enormous. He could never repay it. You might consider as well the way in which this system creates this cycle of trauma where this man, this slave, who's been victimized and oppressed and afraid for his life, turns around and inflicts those very same things on another person. But Jesus doesn't really discuss either of those aspects of the story. Jesus doesn't tell this as a story about slavery or debt or violence. Jesus tells it as a story in response to a question about forgiveness. And to our modern ears, that may seem a little strange. We often associate forgiveness with reconciliation, in a sense, with the restoration of a relationship between two people. So you'll often hear people say that you shouldn't forgive someone, or maybe you even can't forgive someone who hasn't uh, asked, uh, asked for it, who hasn't apologized or tried to make amends in some way. And this makes forgiveness hard. We ask God, after all, to forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. But many of us have been wronged by people who will never make amends. Maybe they've died without making amends, or maybe they don't talk to us anymore. Maybe we never knew them. Think of the person who cuts you off in traffic randomly. Or maybe they're convinced that they're right. In these situations, there will be no apology. And if that's a condition of forgiveness, then we can't forgive. Or we sometimes think that forgiveness is about an emotional process that happens inside of us. That to forgive means no longer to feel pain or anger about the wrong done to us. That we have to somehow come to terms with what's happened. And this is hard, too. Emotions, after all, are one of the hardest things in life to control besides other people. You can't choose to just get over something and forgive, as almost anyone knows. We all want that kind of emotional healing in many places in our lives, but saying that being forgiven is conditional on coming to that kind of emotional healing is a tall order. It puts the burden on the person who's been wronged. If you can't forgive someone in your heart, you might think, then you cannot be forgiven in kind. But what if forgiveness wasn't really about either one of those things? What if forgiveness was something a little different in Jesus' mind and in ours? 
So the Reverend Dr. Matthew Ichihashi Potts is a distinguished theologian, an Episcopal priest and scholar of literature and religion, the Pusey minister in the Memorial Church at Harvard, and the Plummer professor of Christian morals. And yet Matt Potts offers a remarkably simple idea of forgiveness in his recent book entitled Forgiveness. What if forgiveness, he says, is not reconciliation? And what if it's not this emotional process of getting over something? What if forgiveness is just the habit of non-retaliation, he asks. It means this in a particular sense. Retaliation doesn't just mean any kind of revenge or vengeance. Retaliation in this technical, you know, lex talionis, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of sense means payback, literally being paid back for something that's been done to you. The law of retaliation sets limits on what we can ask for in payback. A tooth for a tooth means if you knock out my tooth, I can't chop off your hand. If you take my parking spot, I can't smash your windshield. But it means that I can get payback, your tooth, or, well, the snow back in the spot. And this seems to be the kind of forgiveness that Jesus is talking about, explicitly giving up that opportunity for payback in kind. Think of the moment at which the king forgives this dead. There's no sense of a reconciliation between the two characters. There's no emotional substance to the story. There's no inner work being done. There's simply the decision not to collect something that he's owed, not to demand payment as this man then turns around and does. Non-retaliation doesn't mean inaction. It doesn't mean that you passively accept what's happened. You can protect yourself from harm in the future. You just don't get payback for what's been done. And this kind of forgiveness as non-retaliation is much easier and much harder than the other kinds of forgiveness. It's hard and sometimes impossible and sometimes unwise to rebuild a broken relationship and reconcile with a person. It's hard to restore yourself to emotional health if that's even something you can do by working hard at it. And yet it's easy to do nothing when you've been wronged, at least nothing to the person to get payback. And yet at the same time, doing nothing can be very hard. You don't have to do anything, but you have to not do anything, after all. And yet, there's a lot of wisdom here, because retaliation, as good as it may feel, can never actually fill that hole. A wrong was done, and it cannot be undone, even if some restitution is made. Forgiveness, Potts points out, is a little bit like grief. To forgive is to try to live as best we can in light of what's happened, knowing that it can't be taken away. Nothing can take away the fact that I spent an hour shoveling out that spot and don't have anywhere to park. And in fact, retaliation, you might notice, sometimes adds to the pain, because now I've shoveled two hours worth of snow. And yes, it felt good that that guy had to shovel one. By the way, this is not a real story. <laughs> But my arms are twice as sore, and his shoveling doesn't make them feel any better. 
kind of non-retaliation isn't the end of the response to being wronged, of course, but it certainly is the beginning. And maybe it's the baseline that Jesus asks for when he tells us that we must forgive in order to be forgiven. It's not telling us that we must reconcile, that we must come to terms emotionally with something before we can be forgiven. It simply means that we need to break that cycle of retaliation in which someone wrongs us and we turn around and take it out on them or on someone else, and it goes on and on and on. Jesus isn't asking that we excuse what's been done wrong or allow it, simply that we not repeat it, simply that we not inflict the same on someone else, even if they're the one who did it to us first. Because if we're ever going to break that cycle of pain, if we're ever going to forgive one another as we have been forgiven, it's this kind of non-retaliation that we need to practice, not seven times, or even 77, maybe more like 7,777, once a day for most of our lives. Amen.